Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Society of Armenian Studies podcast. We have today with us Dr. Susan Patty, who recently published uh, a volume, an edited volume, called The Armenian Legionnaires, Sacrifice and Betrayal in World War One, that came out with Ivy Taurus. Susan Patty is also the author of numerous books, including, uh, including Faith and History, Armenia's Rebuilding Community, that came out in 1996 through the Smithsonian. Also, Susan Patty is an honorary senior research associate at the University College London and former director of the Armenian Institute in London. In recent years, she served as director of the Armenian Museum of America and was program manager of the National Armenian Genocide Centennial Commemorations in Washington, D.C. She's also leading a pilot project called Armenian Diaspora Survey, which is sponsored and funded by the Gulbenkian Foundation. Welcome, Susan. Today, we will talk about the, the book that you recently edited and published, the Armenian Legionnaires, Sacrifice and Betrayal in World War One. So first of all, congratulations on the book. And Thank you. I would like and to... congratulations to you, who oh. has chapter two. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I just, I just want to start by asking if you could just briefly tell us about the background work. I mean, how did the idea of publishing the work on the Armenian Legionnaires come up? Well, the idea really came from the Najarian family here in Boston. That's um, George and Carol Ann in particular, Dr. Carol Ann Najarian and George, and uh, George's brother, Michael Najarian, who started this process back in the 1980s. Um, the Najarians, uh, all of them, George and Michael, their father was a legionnaire, and they wanted to honor him. Uh, and they did it in various ways leading up to this. One was uh, Michael began collecting and making an archive of photographs and letters and all kinds of documents from uh, men whom he contacted really all over the country, but primarily Boston Providence area here where he lived. Uh, George and Carol Ann carried on Michael's work and funded two exhibitions at the Armenian Library and Museum of America, now the Armenian Museum of America uh, in Watertown. One was a, an exhibit within the, within the museum. The other continues to be uh, available as a traveling ex exhibition. And when I was the director at the museum, that was really um, a very popular and very moving exhibition. So it caught my attention then, I would say. But um, soon after I left the museum, the Najarians approached me and asked if I would write a book about what's in the, in the exhibition and, and more. Mm -hmm. And at roughly the same time, perhaps a little later, I saw your article in the Armenian Weekly. And I thought, well, this is a really nice serendipitous mm -hmm. joining together. All these things are coming together. Um, and I thought, if you could write chapter a chapter in the book, it would be a great context for the more personal items that had been collected by the Najarians. I should say that the Najarians started this, but really uh, Artemis Mateosian and Arakel Almazian, or Almasian as they say here, 
um, and Barbara McGarrian had worked very hard with curator of the museum, Gary Linsananyan, to create all of this and had gathered more material. Uh, so all of these people together really had done a lot of groundwork uh, for this and had produced these two excellent exhibitions. Um, there's now an archive at the museum where people could do more research and also a room dedicated to the Legionnaires mm -hmm. where there's more material. What about the, so, what about the, the logistical work? How did you compile all the archives, all the photographs? Perhaps we can, we can just use this opportunity to talk about the pictures and the letters and the memoirs that part of which are translated in the book. Maybe a few words about that can just be helpful to kind of elucidate what's, what's inside the book as content. Well, I think it's important to start by saying that the backbone of the book, uh, after the first couple of chapters, is really, uh, and then until the last two, sort of the middle, big middle portion of the book, is uh, composed primarily of, of um, translations of excerpts from the book by Dikran Boyajan, mm -hmm. the Armenian Legion, Haigagon um, Legion, and published by Baikar Press in 1965. It's never been published in English before, so it seemed that really actually was the first thing that the Najarians wa wanted. They just wanted a translation of that book. But then they thought, wait a minute, we've got all this other material. <laughs> so they asked me to start somehow combine all of it. And of course, one thing led to another. Uh, there was more material in the museum. And when I contacted the um, Hoover Institution out at Stanford, they had more material than what had been used. So there was a lot, just a lot to bring together. I asked Dr. Gagi Stepan Sarkisian in London to translate port, well, to parts of the um, Boyajan book. Mm -hmm. We looked at it together and decided which parts would be best to, uh, to include. I should say right away to anybody else, this is clearly not, well, you'll see as soon as you read it, it's not the whole book. It wasn't, didn't end up being a translation, straight translation of the book. But it's clear where the excerpts are in the book. That, that's very clearly linked with the pages in the actual book, so people can go back and forth if they, if they can read Armenian. And perhaps someday someone will translate the whole book. I don't know. So that's, that's the basic um, bringing together of the book. I just followed up leads as they popped up, really, mm -hmm. through, the, through what came up through the translations and what happened in uh, exploring what was in the museum archive and the archive of Michael Najarian yeah. that so was given to So it's basically a compilation of different archives, from personal collections to archives stored at institutions like the Hoover Institute, and, but just photographs that people just donated to these institutions, if I understood it correctly. That's right. Photographs that were donated to the institutions. Also, there, was, uh, there were two videos that were donated to the museum for, their, uh, for use in the um, exhibitions and in the room that's there now. So mm -hmm. I listened to those and used some material from that. I also did some interviews myself, so there's new material from descendants. Um, 
one in particular in Cyprus was very interesting, from another Najarian family, uh, different Najarian family. So um, yeah, mostly from the mostly from the archives, but some new material. Mm-hmm. I mean, what fascinates me with this book is that it came out exactly a hundred years after the Battle of Arara, the major battle in which the legionaries were actually deployed or engaged. As as the editor of of this of this work, what does it mean to publish a work on the legionary exactly after a hundred years of the battle? Since this is a topic, this, this is a very understudied topic, as far as I know. It's understudied, and you raised that in your week, Armenian Weekly article, I think. And um, it's interesting that it should be understudied because it's quite fascinating, and I think uh, gives a lot of different perspectives on World War One. So people outside of Armenians should also be interested in this. Um, as far as it being a hundred years after the Battle of Arara, that caught the attention of I.B. Torres, who mm-hmm. became the our publisher, of course. And I think you know this kind of thing is very interesting to publishers because it's a nice hook. But as you know, having studied this longer and more than I have, in fact, um, it's a long process, mm-hmm. and really the men's. Um, I would almost go so far as to say worse battles and worse times came after the Battle of Arara when they went north to Cilicia, to mm-hmm. Cilicia. And although we honor the men who died at the Battle of Arara, many more died after that in various ways, various times, including the Spanish flu, which struck them almost right after mm-hmm. the you know, 1918 battle. So it's it's a whole process. It's hard when you're so involved in writing about it to focus on one battle, although I'm well aware that that is what they were proud of having helped to win, and it is what they're known for. So I, you know, I'm not belittling that at all. I'm just saying it gets complicated when you're writing about it and reading about it, and you become engrossed in other things that happened and that they did. Yeah. Which to an house, which uh, to a person a hundred years later, seem seem almost equally important. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to put the the Battle of Arara in its larger context, I, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of literature on World War One, but I think focusing on the Armenian legionary is is in a way shifting our understanding of how the war actually uh, proceeded. So maybe a few words about that as to how the book is actually. Uh, a reinterpretation of World War One, or a kind of it's providing us with a different lens to understand the war. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to think that ours is the only book that does provide a different lens, yes, but it course. does. Certainly, it's not just about the major powers, mm-hmm. and it's about looking at those major powers through the viewpoint, the perspective of um, a much smaller people who are in in effect volunteering to be used by those powers. Uh, they went of their own volition that wasn't conscription, and they had their own reasons, some revenge, some uh, hoping for a future. Um, well, all of them hoping for a future back mm-hmm. in their homes and, and creating a new homeland. Not a new, sorry, not a new homeland, but a, a new 
kind of government, self-government in that area of their homeland. So, uh, but it certainly does cast a new perspective, and your chapter explores this in, you know, more explicitly. But throughout the book, we learn about what the men thought they were doing and what the greater powers thought they were doing with the men, uh, and what they were doing with each other. I think a lot of this, uh, the, what we offer through this book, is what the French and British were doing with each other. And let's not include the other, other great powers working there, of course, the Ottoman Empire becoming the Republic of Turkey and then Russia. Um, and further afield, the United States, in the personage of the missionaries and others who were on the ground there, doing, trying to help and um, trying to uh, maintain their own safety as well. But they, they certainly sacrificed themselves as well. So there are many, many representatives of the great powers on the ground, but also manipulating things from far, far, mm -hmm. far afield also, that affected these men. Also, there are a lot of representatives from different Armenian communities. I mean, there's people coming from France, from Egypt, from the United States, like from different parts of the world. And I think that pushes us to think about the perils of, with different auxiliary forces that existed during World War One. So maybe the book is not really touching upon that issue, but I think it holds a lot of potential to actually uh, provide us with a comparative lens with different different auxiliary forces that were in the French or the British armies. For example, the Jewish Legion, the Arab Legion. That's That would be a really interesting thing for you to follow up on in a future mm -hmm. book, I think. That would be a great idea. The, the ones that come out in the book, first, First, let me say that one thing that you um, mentioned but then went on to something a little bit different was the bringing together of Armenians from different, and what they would have at that time considered very different backgrounds, different, mm -hmm. not only different countries, even different villages. So it's a, a diaspora mm -hmm. um, force, basically, and not just the Musadakzis, not just people from Egypt or Iraq or whatever, but all of these guys being brought together, meeting each other, you know, being quite different from each other in their own minds, I'm sure, uh, and being sort of formed into this force. But as you point out, they then fought alongside and sometimes uh, with or against other auxiliary forces. The ones that come out in the book are the Algerians mm -hmm. and what they keep calling the Africans. And um, these were used against each other in some ways by the French, I think, it looks like. There were other forces. You can see Sikhs, for example, in mm -hmm. some of the photographs. So the British had their own. We're just talking about the French auxiliary, other auxiliary forces, but the, the British certainly had theirs. Um, nobody really mentioned the Sikhs. I mean, they just appear in pictures. When I say nobody, I mean in the in the memoirs that I was reading and the um, letters and so on. But they do mention um, men from Algeria in particular, but also some of the African states. So it, it's, um, or colonies at the time, not states. Mm -hmm. the, the, the use of the colonies is something that really, I'm, I must say I didn't do 
the kind of research that I would have done if I had had more time or a longer book. Or mm -hmm. I think that would be very, very interesting thing to follow up on. And I think what's what's particularly interesting and important in this case is that the memoirs and the letters that we actually published in the book give us kind of a sense of what the legionaries were actually thinking on the ground as they were kind of engaging with different ethno-religious communities or different constituencies in Gilikia or like in the Levant. And I think that's that's very important. It gives us, it gives us in a way, a, some raw material to actually deal with this with this period of, of World War One. Some of it is on the ground. Some of it is some years later, as the men wrote their um, memoirs after having digested it for a, a while. But I think you know if we, you, uh, anybody reads enough about the effect of war on people. Uh, participating in a war, these are different kinds of memories. They're things that just don't go away. They don't go very far mm -hmm. back into the memory bank. They're constantly in the foreground. So it's really still quite raw for them. Mm -hmm. But things have happened, meanwhile, and they have a new perspective on it than they did when they were actually mm -hmm. on the ground. So while, while some is uh, yeah immediate Others have uh, a, 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 yeah, a new perspective on the, those still raw feelings. There's this combination of things going on. And how were the legionnaires used for humanitarian relief efforts? Maybe just to end this, this podcast with a, with a question about the actual activities of, of the legionnaires in the post-war period. We know that the French deployed them in Yilikia, in Adana, and other other towns, but they were also used for relief efforts for those genocide survivors that were actually returning to Adana or Girikia. The legionnaires, I think, were very instrumental for, uh, for the relief efforts, for the humanitarian help that was, that, was, that was part of the mission. Before we talk about that, I think it's important to note that the refugees gathering in in Aleppo were virtually forced to return mm -hmm. by the British and the French. Um, who knows, many of them would have returned anyway, but mm -hmm. many of them may have gone on elsewhere or settled in Aleppo or Beirut, you know, who knows where they would have gone. But they, they, the British didn't want them anymore there. The French didn't want them. Nobody wanted them to be gathering there. They didn't want to support them. So these people were forced Many more came back and then were decimated when, when the French left so quickly later on than would have been had they allowed them to carry on where they were. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the, the um, legionnaires also wanted them to return in a way because they, thought that, they still thought that the French were going to support as the war had been won by the Allies. They thought that the French were going to go ahead and support some kind of mandated homeland for them in that area. But, um, and in doing so, they helped to, they did a number of different things, really. And then some names stand out in particular, um, Shankalian, Shishmanian, these people, these officers, some of the few Armenian officers, very few were promoted, as you know, uh, although so many were well-qualified and worked very hard. Um, 
these men would help to, even on their of their own accord, to start factories virtually where people could produce things and start earning money. Um, they would help with the distribution of food around the area, around Adana in particular. But um, the, the men who went off to fight in Marash and so on, as far as I know, they were primarily fighters. But the the kind of work that you're talking about was more in the plain of Adana, mm -hmm. where they would help to... Also, an interesting thing happened there. We have the beginning of self... of The efforts at self-rule with um, having people representing the different Armenian um, organizations or political um, parties, working, t trying to work together, having their meetings with the representatives. We have an interesting photo in the book of, of uh, uh, what about six men, with, I think, Shishmanyan in the middle of them, mm -hmm. Lieutenant Shishmanyan. Uh, and they were trying to get people to uh, farm again, to start producing, uh, and then to distribute that food and to sell food. So they had, within a very small amount of time, really, they began to have, be producing, and the legionnaires were very uh, much active in all of this, both supporting and, and um, protecting them while they did it, but also in, in directing it. Mm -hmm. And Perhaps more, Barak, about this. Do we know what happened to the legionnaires once they once they left Iligia, I mean, once the, once the whole legion was disbanded, some of them stayed in Iligia, but many were kind of forced to forced to leave or forced to evacuate with the French, and some actually returned to the United States, France, where they actually published their memoirs. But it's really interesting for me to see how how did they actually uh, interpret their lives in the post kind of legion period. The last chapters are devoted to discussing that briefly, because there's there's plenty to say about it. And these men were idealists starting out, and they remained idealists. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think to stay sane, most people have got to make some kind of sense of what they've done, even if it looks like a mistake in in retrospect. Mm -hmm. You know, you've been betrayed. They went back and rebuilt and built new, as I say, there you know, new Armenians and Saroyans were new, new uh, communities wherever they settled, and many of them became leaders of of these communities and created new uh, institutions and facilities and all kinds of things. I mean, they really were very active and devoted, dedicated men, and I should say their wives. Um, who were um, not just supporters, but they seemed to team up with very interesting women, and, and they together made a big impact on the communities where they settled. Uh, I want to just say that there were women fighting alongside the legionnaires in Giligia, not during the early days when the French were really in control of mm -hmm. the whole thing, but post-war... Uh, post the actual World War One, and then they would begin the movement into Galicia. Then there were women who joined. Um, Shishmanya says about forty of them. I, I think it must have been hard to keep track, but we have some pictures of them in the in the book as well. But they they went out into uh, you know they settled around uh, the Middle East, 
France, the United States, as you say. Um, the book I have to, I would like to say, is um, really focused on the uh, men who went from the United States and went back to the United States, mm -hmm. just because we have that's the archive that we mm -hmm. have uh, for this book. In addition, and it also was where Boyajan himself settled. He himself. I'd like to just add quickly, there's a, a small bio in the book about him, and you read that, you think, well, how did the man have enough time? He did so much, uh, both uh, in the, the church, the apostolic church, and um, politically, all kinds of things, and writing, and so on. Um, these were people of great energy, it looks like, uh, who had a lot to give, and they did give. Okay, Susan, thank you for this very interesting talk. It was great having you on Society for Armenian Studies podcast. Thank you. Thank you.